Greetings and salutations. You're listening to This Ends at Prom, a podcast where I, teen movie apologist BJ Colangelo, show my wife, Harmony Colangelo, a seminal teen girl movie that I missed out on because I grew up as a teen boy. Is today's movie truly emblematic of womanhood? Or of rose-colored nostalgia glasses What your perspective? Circle yes, no, or maybe to find out if we're crowning a queen? Or if we're killing the teen dream. Welcome to This Ends at Prom. This Ends at Prom is a Pod People production. I don't wanna be your merch girl. I wanna be your goddamn idol. And I don't wanna have to work twice as hard for the same motherfucking title. But I. Hello, prom party. I'm alive. I knew that was coming. Like, I felt it in my soul. (laughs) (laughs) So how you doing? I mean, I don't know how to follow that. You just came in here with some beautiful, fantastical whimsy. I don't know if that's that's beautiful or fantastical. <laughs> I'm like getting over a sinus infection, so I don't know how beautiful that was. Hopefully everyone else thought it was okay. It's just the energy of the song. It yeah. brings it out. Yeah, is that it? Yeah, let's go with that. Sure. <laughs> Friends, we're doing another animated movie and one that so many of you uh, have just been expressing your excitement over, so I hope we can do this one justice for all of your childhoods. Yeah, we uh, we, we had some fun rewatching this, didn't we? We really did. Eventually, I, we had fun. Well, yeah. <laughs> we'll get into the fact that this movie's first half hour is just like, what? And then it goes full tilt, just absurdity very, very quickly. Yeah. Um, but we're, we're talking about The Last Unicorn today. Yes, we are. One of the most cherished animated films for, for young audiences and one that definitely has made an impact on a lot of people. This kind of falls into like that preteen realm because I wouldn't, yeah, I mean, I guess this is a kid's movie, but this is a dark fucking kid's movie. I think this is like a teen movie in the way that The Swan Princess is a teen movie. Agreed. Like, okay, technically, the Swan Princess is a teen herself. Mm-hmm. I don't think the Unicorn is a teen because she's, you know, a mortal. Yeah. But it's cut from a similar cloth. Yeah, because then again, th- by that logic, you could be like, uh, well, you can never cover Twilight then because Edward Cullen's 108. Well, like, it's not about him. a teenager. Yeah. Yeah. Kristen Stewart's the teenager. Yeah, and there's some, I don't know, we don't know how old some of these characters are. They're drawn in very questionable ways. Yeah, there's <laughs> some there are some intense character designs that are all over the place for the people in this film. Yeah, it's kind of great. I love yeah. it. Yeah. So Harmony, what is your exposure to, I almost said the Swan Princess because you got it on my head and then I immediately was like, Derek, but we can't Derek. go there again. <laughs> what was your first exposure to The Last Unicorn? Um, I did not see The Last Unicorn until I was in my 20s. Oh, really? Yes. This was the favorite movie of an ex of mine who, I mean, to put it politely, they are a masterfully manipulative repscallion. 
That's a kind way to put it. Oh, yes. much more kind than I need to be. They are a <laughs> terrible person. Um, yeah, this was their favorite movie. It's, I don't know. I, I didn't really love it. I thought it was fine. Uh, I think maybe I've just had it on in the background, like at work or something. Mm-hmm. Um, like I think I had it as a part of a unicorn marathon for National Unicorn Day one time. Yeah, but that was also sandwiched between the Unicorn movies, which are infinitely more of your speed. Oh gosh, like the, the, the Unico and the Island of Magic. This is not, <laughs> but that's fine. Uh, yeah, I think that watching it with you for this episode was the most fun I've had with this movie. And like maybe the four times I've seen it. Aw, that's sweet. Yeah, so what about you? Uh, this falls in with the Swan Princess as the not Disney animated movies that didn't cost as much growing Mm -hmm. up. So I definitely watched this a bunch as a kid. But what's weird is that I think... I just kind of forgot about it until maybe the last three, four years ago. This is a movie that I had seen, but it didn't make a massive impact on me. And then rewatching it as an adult, I was like, oh, there's actually a lot of really interesting things going on here. But I distinctly remember when you showed this at the bar for Unicorn Night, it was the first one that you had put on because we watched it with sound and then turned it off because it got packed at the bar, and that's usually when the sound goes off, and then you turned the sound back on, so we all had to listen to Jeff Bridges try to sing. Ugh, yes, God. It it makes me so tickled that Jeff Bridges cannot sing in the slightest. Like, there's a line where he's like, music and I don't get along, and I was like, yeah, no fucking kidding. (laughs) He's trying really hard. Is he, though? I don't know if Jeff Bridges is trying at all in this movie. I'm going to be totally (laughs) honest with you. Like, this is the most phoned-in performance I've ever heard from him. (laughs) So so we're watching it, though, this this last time, and I had a a lot of fun with it with, eventually. with you. Yeah, eventually. <laughs> um, because so much of this movie feels like a fever dream. And then all of a sudden, I was just very invested in a couple of really weird things. Mm-hmm. And uh, I definitely see why this movie was so impactful for so many people. I know this is like a big Gen X childhood movie just because of when it came out. Oh, this is a bona fide cult classic of animation. Yeah, yeah for sure, for sure. And the animation styles are really interesting. And it's... It's it's inconsistent, but yes. <laughs> yeah, but I totally understand why people love this, and I'm I'm pretty excited to talk about it. Yes. So for the uninitiated who have not seen The Last Unicorn, as per our friend Dango, in this animated musical, the villainous King Haggard, Christopher Lee, plots to destroy all the world's unicorns. When a young unicorn, Mia Farrow, learns that she's in danger and that she may soon be the last of her kind, she leaves the safety of her protected forest and enlists the help of Schmendrick, Alan Arkin, a gentle, albeit clumsy, sorcerer. Together they embark on a long and dangerous journey with one goal, to defeat Haggard and save the unicorns from extinction. Yeah, that's actually a very good synopsis of this movie i think so too including a little bit of spoilers yeah there's a little bit of spoilers but there's also like you know we're we're missing molly in there she's there too she's there eventually (laughs) let's be honest this is this is a movie that i don't know i i wouldn't even call the unicorn the main character this is schmendrick's story this really is schmendrick's movie like yeah 
the the last unicorn is obviously the most iconic, the most visually identifiable. I think Mia Farrow is doing a great job um, mm-hmm. with her voice performance in this. And, you know, she's got those violet eyes and she kind of looks like she's glowing. Purple eyelashes as Purple a human. Purple eyelashes as a human. Yeah, she's got a lot of good stuff going on there for her. But ultimately, yeah, this is a movie about kind of Schmendrick's journey and him helping this unicorn. Yeah. And, you know, learning to not be such a incompetent magician. Yeah, we looked up that Schmendrick is Yiddish for fool. Yeah, and that makes sense for this character. It certainly sits a little weird that they gave him such a giant nose. Yeah, that once learning that, I was like, I feel conflicted now about your character design. I mean, there's a whole lot to be said about the characterizations of like, like Disney villains for sure are the worst at it about how everything is just like very nosy and a lot of the characters have a tendency to look like uh, anti-Jewish propaganda from the 40s. Mm-hmm. Um, so knowing that history exists in the world of animation, it's like very, ugh, when you look at Schmendrick and how he's depicted. But he is a hero. But he is so a hero. that's good. Yeah. So in, in a sense, like there's a lot of things that The Last Unicorn does ahead of Disney, which I think is really interesting, and that they subvert a lot of tropes. And, like, there's not, like, this movie is not, like, a sexist nightmare the way that most animated films tend to be. And you're totally right. Like, there is a a history of poor, you know, Jewish-coded representation in animation, and this movie makes him the hero. Mm -hmm. And you're like, oh, okay, and then, you know, the last unicorn hit, and then it's just kind of been downhill from there as far as that sort of representation goes. Yeah. Um, speaking of, let's talk about context. Okay. So we did not think about this when we originally sat down to do The Last Unicorn, that this is one of the oldest movies we've covered so far. Yeah, I think it's our second oldest. Uh, third, because it's the same year as The Last American Virgin. So it's tied. Yes. Okay. Uh, this is a weird period of the early 80s where the teen formula's not established and there's not really a lot of targeted teen stuff. Yeah, we this haven't... is even pre-MTV. Yeah, we haven't gotten our Molly Ringwald trilogy yet. Yeah, so if you want to look at like, uh, the, the, and I'm going to put big fat quotes around the teen films of this year. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a mixed bag. It's mostly like gross out teen boy movies uh, mm-hmm. revolving around sex, or it's a lot of horror films because okay. we're in the boom of the slasher film. Mm-hmm. So here's here's some of what we're working with: Fast Times at Ridgemont High, which is a perfect film. It's it's very classic, but the most iconic scene is of course the pool scene. Of course, and yes. when I, I also need to specify because people love taking things out of context, Fast Times at Ridgemont High is a perfect movie. For 1982. Oh, especially for what it is. For exactly what it is, yes. It achieves every goal that it has set out, and that includes the things that are questionable at best. Anyway, moving on. Um, The Last American Virgin, which we mentioned a little bit ago. Mm -hmm. Zapped. Okay. Class of 1984. I love Class of 1984. (laughs) Friday the 13th, Part 3. Okay. Slumber Party Massacre. Hell yes. And uh, two films that are... Favorites of yours, which I would say are the closest to actual, like, teen girl movies this year. Okay. And we'll do both eventually. Grease 2. <laughs> My heart. 
and ladies and gentlemen, the fabulous Danes. Yeah, both of those are fantastic. Both of those are cult classics. So, yes. so those are the closest things you get to like teen girl movies, and mm-hmm. they are they're only edgy cult. As hell. Cla- yeah, and they're only cult classics, r- really in hindsight. Yeah. So there's not a, a strong feminine presence really at all during this no, time. Not really, no. However, what is also going on is a fuck ton of fantasy films. Yeah, there is a massive fantasy boom that happened in the 80s, and you lay down some titles and I'll give some additional context. So there's plenty, but here are a few of the more interesting things that were going on. The Dark Crystal came out this year. The Secret of Nim came out this year. Conan the Barbarian. The Beastmaster. The Flight of the Dragons. Mazes and Monsters, which is actually uh, the first Tom Hanks movie, and it's a made-for-TV film about Dungeons and Dragons, essentially. And this was also the year that the Masters of the Universe toy line was launched. That's wonderful. Yeah, so High Fantasy was in vogue. Oh, yeah, High Fantasy kind of ruled at this. And there are a couple of reasons why. There was actually... We, we had this conversation while we were watching the movie, and I, of course, fell down an internet rabbit hole, mm-hmm. like I do. And I found a Reddit question from four years ago. Yes. That said, what spurred the fantasy boom in the 80s and are we in store for another? And then they go on to cite all of the things that you just mentioned. And the user Millennium Dodo, great name, mm-hmm. says a few factors. There are probably more, but this is what they believe. This is the micro version of it. Yes. Number one, Star Wars. A small science fantasy movie. I love the fact that they acknowledge that Star Wars is a fantasy. No one ever wants to do that. It's King Arthur in space, yeah. Yes, it is. So a small science fantasy movie that very few people expected to be a success, which broke all box office records and became a giant pop culture phenomenon. Many of the science fiction fantasy movies in the 80s come from people trying to replicate George Lucas's success. Yeah, because the thing that we don't really... Like, there's no shortage of, like, space and science films in the 80s. Because mm-hmm. that's also the, a decade of intense technology-focused oh, yeah. stuff. Because that's the rise of, like, arcades and a big boom, like, tech-wise. Mm-hmm. But none of these things are, like, proper science fiction mm-hmm. they are all sort they're, they're, they're space action they're mm-hmm. space fantasy they're all of these other elements that don't really have much to do with classic science fiction mm-hmm. which i find really interesting the second thing that they cite is terry brooks's sort of shannara played a big role in establishing the fantasy genre it came out in 1977 and was a huge commercial success the biggest since lord of the rings which proved that there was a market for non-Tolkien fantasy novels and kickstarted the boom you're talking about. Mm-hmm. I love that. Yes, bring up the literature because we're. This is also a time when people are still reading. Yeah, and it's like a big thing and a big important thing to read, which I love. Yeah, and I think it's really important to note that the majority of the fantasy films that you got during this decade, even just this year, are adaptations of books, mm-hmm. or in the case of Conan, that's a comic book, mm-hmm. and so is The Last Unicorn. Yeah, Les Unicorn is a book. And then the last thing they cited, which I think is the most obvious of all, is Dungeons and Dragons come out in the 70s. It quickly becomes hugely popular, which probably also contributed to more people being interested in fantasy, especially children. Mm -hmm. And I think that is the intersection that leads us to something like The Last Unicorn, because it is this big fantasy epic. It's also something that benefits from animation Mm -hmm. like this would have been i think a little weird to try to do live action 
Um, I think you could have done it in the way that they did, like, NeverEnding Story, but it definitely benefits visually yeah, from agreed. Being animated. I think it's because there are just enough elements in this that I think would have looked weird had they gone live action, no matter what. Like, I'm sorry, but waves of unicorns in the ocean. Oh, like, it would have looked so It would have looked so silly in, in live action. Yeah. Um, so, I, and then you, you know, add the fact that the children's market really hadn't been tapped yet. Mm-mm. So it makes complete sense. And this is coming from Rankin and Bass, who worked with this same animation company to make The Hobbit. And yep. we see a lot of those stylistic influences um, in this, for sure. Well, there's a lot of bleed over, especially because... Peter S. Beagle was the screenwriter for The Hobbit, and he's the guy who wrote The mm-hmm. Last Unicorn and helped adapt it to film. Yes. So there's there's a lot of intersections that are meeting here that kind of, it, it really does make sense why this movie came out when it did and why it exploded the way that it did in terms of children's joy. Yeah. And a thing that I think is really interesting to bring up is that um, particularly with the launch of Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, which I think came out in 77, which I was I believe was the same year as the Lord of the Rings animated movie, is that you now have uh, a sense of entertainment that is built around children's imaginations, uh, teens' imaginations, anybody, and that benefits like the world of reading. So mm-hmm. that ties into like the fantasy novel, as you know it. And... That also ties into how films like this work, because uh, I would say that since like The Last Unicorn or say Secret of Nim, which also came out this year, were uh, successful-ish, uh, Secret of Nim more so in their time, but they were very, very popular in rentals with poorer kids, as you can mm-hmm. attest to. Mm-hmm. And I think that that all kind of works in unison yeah, no, I, I agree with you completely. I think you completely nailed it on that one. Where have you been? Where have you been? Don't you talk to her that way. I'm here now. <laughs> oh, and where were you 20 years ago? 10 years ago? Where were you when I was new? When I was one of those innocent young maidens you always come to? And this is also pre-Saturday morning cartoons as we knew them in the 80s. Mm-hmm. And that would probably explain why you do not have dumbed down moments for The Last Unicorn. Because mm-hmm. like, there's some very adult moments. Like yeah. there's titties in this movie. A lot Monstrous of, titties. A lot of things have titties in this movie. And there's some swearing and I, I, there's some scary imagery. A lot of people talk about the Red Bull being terrifying. But honestly, I think... Haggard is kind of a scary dude. Now, granted, he's camp as shit, but I think yeah. he's terrifying because he's Christopher Lee. Yeah, Christopher Lee is... There There are some people in this that I think are really, really selling it. Christopher Lee, really selling it. Alan Arkin, really selling it. Mia Farrow is doing an excellent job at what she's supposed to be doing. Jeff Bridges, he's there. <laughs> yes. Angela Lansbury is doing okay. Angela Lansbury is doing great. She She's great. Mommy Fortuna is a big creep and I love her. The MVP of the film is the skeleton who has one scene. Uh, the drunk skeleton's incredible. Oh, I he's love such him. a lush. And we'll, we'll dive deep on yeah. onto him because we kind of lost our minds oh, God, watching I love, him. I love him so much. So uh, do you want to just kind of go chronologically through this movie? 
I guess so. Like right. the last like four weeks, I feel like we've just been completely off all of our our normal. Whatever. We're we're a loosey goosey podcast like that. Yeah. So um, this movie opens with some huntsmen who are there for exposition's purpose. Yeah. We the never see them again. Huntsmen. <laughs> yeah, and I made fun of them for being like, "Wow, it's just really convenient." They're having this conversation about unicorns, where the unicorn is an earshot to hear them. <laughs> and okay, fine, but. If they weren't there, that probably just would have been a disembodied voice giving us some exposition as maybe text crawled up screen, which would have been worse. Yeah, so, it would have been just like beautiful frolicking unicorn and some person being like, as legend has is, it. The last unicorn is living peacefully in her forest. <laughs> Little does she know. Like, it would have been so that. Yeah. And... It makes it, this is very much like a storybook fantasy kind of movie, but it feels a little bit less storybooky mm-hmm. because they're not doing that. So then we get the opening credits with the uh, music by America <laughs> part where they do the last unicorn theme and then we get a, uh, a rambling, uh, who knows what kind of butterfly also giving us exposition. That butterfly is high off his ass. Ass. That butterfly is the worst version of a Robin Williams stra- <laughs> train of thought. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Because he's just making weird song references over and over and over again that are wildly anachronistic and not making any sense. Yeah, this butterfly's high as shit. My theory is that this butterfly is the continued evolution of the caterpillar that hookah smoking caterpillar the hookah smoking caterpillar from alice in wonderland like he transformed into a butterfly and became this high motherfucker yeah and now he's doing costume changes that involves being a fighter pilot and just singing and dancing and there's also like vague elton john-ness to him he's, he's kind of fabulous like that. yeah he's you know, a little fabulous just, just a little bit so then there's the epiphany that the unicorn who is just known as the unicorn has where she realizes she is the last unicorn, possibly, but she doesn't believe it, mm-hmm. and ventures out to see if it's true. Mm-hmm. That we learn that your average human cannot see that she is a unicorn. She just looks like a really pretty horse, and she is. She's a white mare. She's a beautiful white mare who is drawn and animated better than anything else in the movie, yes. including nothing else having shading except for her. <laughs> yeah. There are so many moments where they will cut to the other characters and they're just really flat and mm-hmm. then they go back to her and she's got all this dimension. Yeah, and also like Schmendrick has the most, I don't know, like he's kind of got dead eyes. Sometimes they go a little cross too, but I secretly love it in animated movies when characters go off model and they look a little wonky. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, I like it too, because there's a lot more rigidity that you've gotten in more recent animation where you're not allowed to go off model and like it kind of hampers things, which is uh, heartbreaking. Also worth mentioning is that The Last Unicorn was animated essentially by Studio Ghibli before Studio Ghibli was a thing, Mm -hmm. which is why it looks as good as it does. This is basically like Japanese animators trying to make the Lord of the Rings movie, (laughs) but you know, it, it makes it look very whimsical. But compared to Schmendrick's dead eyes and the overly drawn, like, sentimental unicorn eyes, you just notice that there's some inconsistencies on where their Mm -hmm. priorities were placed in this movie. Yeah, for sure. But I do want to ask, because we did have this conversation at the end of viewing the movie. Does the last unicorn have less personality than the Swan Princess does as characters? Yes. Yeah, but why do I like her more than the Swan Princess? 
I don't know. Do you also feel that way? I do, but here's where I I feel about that. So the swan princess, as both the princess and the swan, I think that she does have a little bit more personality because she's also far more animated, if if that makes any sense. No, like she's physically animated. Yeah. Yeah, so there's a lot more like personality that is seen from the character because of that animation style. I think there was more money put onto that I film think than this so. one. I think so too. Yeah. Um, but also I don't mind that the unicorn isn't like this over the top, like Pegasus level um, animated thing. Cause mm-hmm. like there's a stoicness and an elegance to her mm-hmm. that I don't think you get to see very often in kids movies. Like we have an expression of like, Oh, so and so is like a cartoon, or they're acting yeah. like a cartoon. Yeah, she's acting like a unicorn. Yeah, and that she's I think she's very graceful. She's, she's beautiful. Elegant. She's elegant. Like I think that that's intentional, so it doesn't bother me. Mm-hmm. It doesn't bother me either. But I just didn't realize until we watched it this most recent time, and like I'm actively critically thinking about this movie. I'm like, wow, they. I mean, maybe it's just because she's a unicorn, so she's not capable of human emotions because that's the end of the movie. She learns how to feel regret and love, which mm-hmm. other unicorns couldn't feel. Mm-hmm. So it's like, okay, well, she's just not capable of the wide range of emotions that humans do. And that's right. maybe for the best, considering she's immortal and it might be turned into hell if you could feel oh the full gosh. range of emotions. If, could you imagine being like a pure empath and immortal? That absolutely is hell. Yeah, so... That, that would suck. Maybe that's why unicorns aren't known for their feelings. <laughs> but it just was like, wow, she really doesn't have, she doesn't, she doesn't express very much until she's a human and then she's mm-hmm. basically a different character. Mm-hmm. So yeah, she goes on an adventure and is very calm and whimsical and breathy. and Yeah, even when she's dealing with turmoil, I mean, when, when Mommy Fortuna kidnaps her, you would think that she would wake up and be just like devastated and in fear and panic. And that's not what happens. It's very much like a subdued acceptance of, well, this is the hand I'm being dealt with. How do I get through this? How do I get out of here? She's she's a little bit like Aunt Martha in Sleepaway Camp where, oh, oh heavens, this is just so unfortunate and will not this do. This just will not do. Like, it's a little bit like that. Yeah, a little bit. Which is weird because I like it when the unicorn does it. And granted, I love when Aunt Martha does it because it's just she's, a different She is version. a sociopath. <laughs> but it's coming from different places. But it's very, it feels very similar. Yeah, I mean, and, and she does show that she cares like she's very concerned for the other animals yeah after she's kidnapped but it isn't this like larger than life oh my gosh we have to help them like it's not that and in a weird way that's refreshing because it does feel a little unpredictable especially given what i'm used to from a lot of animated movies yeah i i think the 80s did that in general um maybe maybe not so much disney because Disney is, it, Disney's fantasy, but Disney is so not fantasy like we know fantasy yeah. from this decade. And maybe that's why they were struggling, because they weren't fitting what people wanted out of something like this. Well, what's also important, too, is because this is pre-Disney Renaissance, the Disney Renaissance meaning like that... Little Mermaid. Little onward, Mermaid yeah. and Aladdin and everything that kind of followed after. There wasn't a formula yet for yeah. these types of movies, and... There, because there was no formula and because it wasn't Disney, which for all intents and purposes, Disney is a 
relatively conservative platform. Yeah, Disney's fantasies are fairy tales. Yes, they're they're very much fairy tales. But then they cut out all of the gruesome and dark things about most fairy tales. Correct. So, yeah, um, I, I do think it's really interesting when you think about that, though, because this is pre-Saturday morning cartoons from the 80s. This is pre-Disney Renaissance. Like, the nails hadn't been put in the coffin to seal off animation as being viewed as, like, a children's thing exclusively yet. Yeah. And I think that's one reason this movie does work for having, like, the darkness that it does. Well, that's what I was trying to get to earlier, is that because this is before that renaissance happened, and because animation was still understood as a medium and not just exclusively, like, this is for kids. Yeah. That also meant that they didn't have to dilute their message. They didn't have to sugarcoat anything. They didn't have to dumb things down because oh, if the six-year-old doesn't understand this and it's not presented to them on a silver platter, then it's going to be a failure. Yeah, and this, I mean, I've not read the book, but this feels like a more accurate version of what the source material is most likely, especially mm-hmm. because it has the writer involved. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it. I, I've not read the book, I think, since probably like junior high. So I, I genuinely can't speak on whether or not it's it's accurate Mm -hmm. i assume at least it has the same heart at at minimum but there's a lot of things about this movie that i wish we could get back to yeah and i the darkness is part of it Mm -hmm. um i think i've gone on this rant before on previous episodes but if not i hate the fact that there really isn't a lot of transitionary material for children yeah um that helps bridge the gap between like babified little kids content and baby and baby content into adulthood there's not yeah. a lot of this like preteen sort of material available yeah and there really isn't upsetting material geared towards children no you see those lists all the time where people are like oh my god nightmare fuel and so many of those things are from like the 80s to maybe the early 90s Mm-hmm. Whether it be like, oh my god, the Swamp of Sadness, or... The Witches. Any, the Witches, or any of the imagery from Secret of Nim or Littlefoot's mom dying. It's like, just blatantly jarring and dark things that don't care about your feelings. And like, sure, like, the opening of Up is sad, but it's not dark, it's just sad. Yeah, and I think people are failing to realize how important it is for kids and preteens to be given that outlet to sort of explore those negative emotions Mm -hmm. in a safe environment and doing it through a movie is a safe environment like if your introduction to death is like someone in your family dying that's a lot harder than if your introduction to death is like bambi's mom or the junkyard scene in the brave little toaster yes like there's so (laughs) many ways that you can help your kids learn how to get through those difficult times without it having to be real but so much of children and young like young preteen media has been so sanitized that there's no more room for exploration and then people are wondering why their kids are growing up with like difficult with difficulties with emotional regulation or empathy or any of these things that you can learn from watching these movies like there's so much empathy in the last unicorn, people are helping her because I think that's they the feel moral bad. Of the movie, right? The moral of the movie is like to <laughs> to feel what other people are feeling and to like get them through it. Yeah, that's like the whole the whole third act of this movie is to her just looking at the ocean. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 wild to me, 
And these are the things that I wish we could get back to. And we're starting to. Like, every once in a while, we'll see something that I'm like, wow, okay, like, Mitchell's versus the Machines, I really, really loved. Inside Out, obviously, like, hey, have your feelings ever had feelings? Mm-hmm. Um, I think those are really, really good examples. But then they're also sandwiched between, like, a ton of stuff that I just have zero interest in. Yeah. Because it just feels so twee and safe. And yeah. The, yeah, there's there's good to be had when you just need those comfort movies, but we're getting to this really uncomfortable intersection where we've prioritized comfort so much, and not even just in kids stuff. I'm saying just in general that people are now struggling with dealing with negativity. Like people fundamentally do not know how to process rejection mm-hmm. or uncomfortability like people don't know how to sit in their own discomfort anymore and it's like you you desperately need to oh it's it's worrisome but that that is an argument and a a tangent for another day no i i agree and i think what fantasy films from this era in particular because the 80s fantasy is truly its own breed it really is is that these are perilous films Mm-hmm. Which, I mean, it's beneficial to the hero's journey, however that might be. In this case, it's Schmendrick, because he is the hero. Mm-hmm. But, I don't know, like, the, it, the stakes are more real. Like, that benefits you narratively, and also, like, emotionally. I agree completely. Because the harpy is, is, is actually murders the fuck out of people in this movie when she breaks mm-hmm. free from the circus. Yeah, it's not even, like, a cute little like oh maybe they'll like no mommy fortuna is basically like kill me bird i i deserve this you're gonna kill me one day but god damn it you're gonna remember me forever that's my immortality yeah which is like that's hardcore and like sure it cuts away so we don't see the bird like gnawing her face off but it straight up murders her and her son and the unicorn's response is to be like don't run from things that are immortal they notice you then Mm mm-hmm so, like, that's fucking hardcore. <laughs> yeah, agreed. Agreed. That's, that's jarring in a cool way. Especially because, again, we talked about how the like, opening of this movie is kind of slow. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it it functions as, like, a, a series of, like, small vignettes, similar yeah. to how something like The Hobbit does before we actually get to the third act. And it's like, ah, yes, plot. Mm-hmm. Like, now we've actually gotten to where the plot is. Mm-hmm. Which is, you know, a journey. <laughs> So I wanted to cite from an article from the AV Club written by Alex McLevy. This was written six years ago, and it's titled, The Last Unicorn Was Nightmare Fuel to a Generation of Kids. Okay. In this article, the writer says, I've spoken with numerous people about this movie over the years, and to a one, they all respond with some variant of the following. Oh, I remember watching that. That movie scared the crap out of me as a child. (laughs) This isn't to say that everyone was scared to death of it, But it is to say that many of us who saw it at an impressionable age, death occasionally seemed the preferable option. I remember the film periodically appearing on television as a child. My most vivid memory of The Last Unicorn is of turning on the TV, seeing it materialize on the screen, and then running out of the room as fast as my little legs would carry me. (laughs) So I love that so much. Like, I I, I love exploring kinder trauma. It's one of my favorite things. But... um, there there are so many things about this movie that the the writer brings up as being terrifying. One of them being that whole situation with Mommy Fortuna and being like a little kid watching this and understanding that this woman was accepting her death and yeah. that being really intense yeah. to process as a kid. 
There's not a witch in the world hasn't laughed at Mummy Fortuna and our homemade horrors, but there's not one of them who would have dared. The Harpy and me, we're not for you. Who are you for, then? Do you really think those fools knew you without any help from me? <laughs> no, I had to give you a horn they could see. <laughs> These days it takes a cheap carnival trick to make folk recognize a real unicorn. But about 20 years later, writer rewatches and says, The last unicorn was not scary to me as an adult. That much was clear. But what I wasn't prepared for... What I couldn't have been prepared for is just how weird the film is. Deeply, wonderfully weird. In Janet Maslin's New York Times review, she describes it as an unusual children's film in many respects, the chief one being that it is unusually good. She goes on to describe it as a whimsical, picaresque adventure, which is a little bit like describing the last 20 minutes of 2001 A Space Odyssey as a journey into unknown space. <laughs> it's not wrong exactly, but it undersells the singular nature of the whole enterprise. In some ways, it's an archetypal tale for kids, a story about the value of experience and the importance of putting yourself out there to struggle through love, loss, and even regret. Our hero learns that the other unicorns have all been driven away by a legendary red bull, and to find them, she has to travel across the land, leaving the safe haven of her enchanted forest. Soon, accompanied by a young magician, Schmendrick, the unicorn encounters the red bull and is turned into a human woman to protect her from the animal. In human form, though, she starts to forget her true nature. Stupid, forgetful humans. So she changes back, defeats the Red Bull, and frees all the other unicorns, who, it turns out, had been trapped in the ocean. The unicorn returns to her homeland, having experienced both love and regret, and being glad she did. Roll credits. Mm -hmm. I love the emphasis on experiencing them both, both love and regret, and being glad that she did. Because I think too often these movies, the main goal is like experiencing love or experiencing joy or, or winning or accomplishing. Mm -hmm. And never about the fact that like sometimes getting to that point, there's some suckiness and that's equally as good. No, I absolutely agree. And I think maybe that's one reason that the unicorn is an interesting character because I don't know if like her personality is not very well defined, you know, but the things she experiences is what where her character growth comes from, mm -hmm. which is like so classic and obvious. But what is overall a character who gets by pretty strongly on her character design, I think that that's like really important specifically for this story. Mm -hmm. I agree completely. Um, they also go on to talk about that that scene with Mommy Fortuna, and I love the way that this is written, and it also includes some stuff from the from the author of the book. Mommy Fortuna has only one desire, to succeed in show business, and the hell with mortality, truth, or even life itself. She embraces her death, confident that she has achieved a kind of everlasting life. Her name will be remembered even if only by her murderer. Peter S. Beagle, author of the source novel, has stated that he intended the character to be a comment on the emptiness of this mentality. She wants to be famous, and she knows why she isn't. Everyone has dreams, even sloppy old witches. I like that. I do too, because that's another aspect of it. Like, it would be so easy to see that moment as just like unnecessary violence or like something really scary. But something bad happens to a bad person. Yeah, but it's like no, like there's there's reason behind that, and I think that is also the magic of this movie is that even these moments that would be quote unquote like too scary for kids 
are so justified with the character's intentions. Yeah, and let's, I mean, that's this is what we're going to do with basically every animated movie we ever fucking cover. Is let's compare this to Disney. Most Disney villains are just easy to write off as, oh, they're greedy. Oh, they want power. That's it. Yeah, there's no nuance to them at all. They're no, just they're pure evil. Extremely simple. And there's more to even this character. Who, who isn't even the main villain of the movie? She's the main villain of, like, the f- first act. There's more to it than that, which is... I don't, I don't know. I think that's very interesting. Mm-hmm. I think so, too. They then go on to talk about how, like, you go from this scene to then something that's, like, equally strange. So, uh-huh. children's movies are often riddled with bizarre anachronisms, and this one's no exception. Perhaps the most random of these comes during the encounter with a group of bandits. The Unicorn and Schmendrick encounter Captain Cully and his marauders, who will briefly delay them during their travels. Our heroes are invited to join their roaring fire in the woods, and in the seemingly medieval universe, Cully's invitation is a boisterous have a taco. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, that's like a weird thing to come out of like this, again, like seemingly medieval time period. It's just weird as shit. I mean, we already established with the butterfly that time is meaningless. Yeah, that's very You know what? Very when, you're a, when you're an immortal unicorn, time means nothing to you. Yeah. And that's the mentality we're working with in this movie. So, plot-wise, we're now getting to the, the big what the fuck of this movie. We're getting, we're getting to the main course of this three-course dinner. We got to talk about that big titty tree. Oh, not that part. No. <laughs> oh, we're not even at the main course yet. No, I'm talking about like oh, the, the what tree. the fuckness. The, the big titty tree. The big titty tree. The, the second amount of titties that are featured in this movie prominently. Yeah, because we got scary bird titties and now we have big tree titty titties. Trees. You could have monstrous non-human titties in this movie and that's fine. Yeah. And also see like the unicorn's bare human ass at one point. Yeah. I don't know how to process the big titty feel, tree. How do you feel about these tree titties? Lord of the Rings got nothing on this. <laughs> I can't tell if I'm excited to finally have representation in an animated movie. Yeah. Because buxom trees. I'm also a buxom tree because this isn't a tall tree. This is kind of a stumpy tree. And I yeah. too am a stumpy tree with big titties. So yeah. I relate to this character. What I can't understand is just the complete acceptance of every character of like, ah, yeah, this tree got tits. Because Schmendrick is just like, big hug, put my whole face in it, no questions asked. I mean, asked. he was tied to the tree like that. <laughs> but still, like, no one is questioning, like, why does this tree have titties? Like, it's just a thing everyone accepts. And I feel like that would have been the first thing I would have had a question about, is what is happening? Like, I understand, we've seen mythical creatures, there's talking butterflies, there's a lot of whack-ass shit that's already been going on. Tree titties, I think that's where my suspension of disbelief uh, caps. I, this tree is like the tree version of that one older sister from Coraline, the one with the giant titties. Okay, yeah. That, that just let's tie all of our dark references all together in children's media. And this feels like that character. And you know what? Bless her confidence. And also the fact that she is prepared to die with Schmendrick for some reason of just like, we're going to die together. And it's like, <laughs> whoa, where is this coming from? <laughs> well, it's definitely like a be careful what you wish for kind of thing. Like, he wants I, giant tree twitty, titties? He wants like some love. Like I, I, underst- I, like the, I understand the pursuit of love, but also like tree titty. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, tree mommy, crush me under your massive milkers. 
want to be saplings. Oh, saplings are tiny trees. Oh, that's true. That's not the word I wanted. That's okay. Sappies. <laughs> that's a way worse. I don't like that. <laughs> it's like when people say cummies and I want to like die a little bit. Syrupies. Ew, that's worse. <laughs> Sa- I-, I thought sappies was bad. Syrupies is way worse. Anyway. When they all arrive there, the tree calls the unicorn a hussy. Like, yeah. we need to not forget that. Like, in terms of the language, like, that, <laughs> this is a children's movie where a tree calls a unicorn a hussy. Um, and then, you know, she tries to kill Schmendrick with, like, death by snoo snoo, essentially. Which is tight. Uh, which is kind of tight. Um, and as the, the writer of this AV article puts it, it's a sexual nightmare of Freudian proportions. Yeah, yeah sure. It's, it's fine. Smother it. Nothing wrong with smothering. Freud would have had a fucking field day with that scene. Oh, Freud sure. would have a fucking field day with how much everyone calls everyone mommy these days. Yeah, oh, he would lose it. And people are just like, oh, I'm doing it because it's funny. And I'm like, y- you young kids today and taking sexuality things like like supple and breedable and all this stuff and just be like... Submissive <laughs> and breedable? Yeah, just be like, <laughs> it's funny. I'm like, okay. <laughs> yeah. Whatevs. Anyway, after we get tree titty, then we get to our main course. Yes, now we're actually at We had our tree titty appetizer. We're, we, oh God, tree titty appetizer. Okay. <laughs> Yes. Anyway, we get to the part of the film where you and I started to have so much fun. We had a blast and a half. Like once we, we once we get to with... King Haggard's castle, we have so much fun with this movie. Yeah, because King Haggard is Christopher Lee being an old queen at like an eleven. Here's the thing: this whole movie belongs to the gays. The tree honestly has a whole lot of old queen vibes herself. That's very true. But God damn it, if King Haggard, more like King Faggard, because he is just an <laughs> old queen. Uh, I need <laughs> the record to state that Harmony made that joke while we were watching it, and I about died. Yeah, because here's the thing. I didn't realize how, like, gay King He's Haggard is. so gay. King Haggard treats unicorns the way Alfred Hitchcock treats women, which is like, <laughs> I like looking at you, but I also hate you. <laughs> it is incredible. Yeah, King Haggard is, like... In obsessed with unicorns, on like honestly, the only thing that brings him joy, including his own son, he does not really love. Well, the other thing is because he found him. Like, does not even he just randomly picks up this baby that nobody wanted. Yeah, so like that. I I never was a father before, so let's just give this a go. Yeah, like that also kind of furthers this whole like gay reading of him because like it's not his actual kid. Yeah. So then King Haggard becomes kind of like a sexless character. Yeah. Because there's no proof that he's ever done it. So who knows? Um, it just he, Christopher Lee. There's a monologue where he is talking to the unicorn mm-hmm. in her human form, and boy, he's so over the top. He's amazing. Like, we were trying to have a conversation. I was like, "Hold up, we're going to come back to that." I just want to watch this scene because <laughs> I love him. There is only one thing that has ever made me happy. What is that? Do not mock me. I know very well what you have come for, and you know very well that I have them. Try to take them if you can, but do not mock me. Christopher Lee is committing at like Tim Curry levels of of I'm gonna make this character. Well, especially because I think by this point Christopher Lee hadn't done a lot of voice acting yet. I don't think so. Like either. as he got older, he started to lean more into his voice. But at this thing, I think he was mostly a live action guy. So mm-hmm. oh my god, he went so campy because he's like, oh, it's a cartoon. I know how to be in a cartoon. You'd be animated, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah, he was right. 
He really is. And it just, it cracks me up because in comparison to like Mia Farrow and Jeff Bridges who were being like kind of chill. And then like Alan Arkin is kind of just being Alan Arkin. Yeah. Like he's just doing Arkinisms. And like there's nothing wrong with that. But Christopher Lee just sticks out. Like him and Angela Lansbury, which I understand they're also both like the villains. Yeah. So they're campy. Yeah. They are playing in like a completely different ballpark than everyone else. And I love it. They're kind of like when old people just sort of go like, fuck it. Yeah, pretty much. Like, I don't care. I'm old. Yeah, that's kind of what's happening. It's fantastic. It's so cool. I love it. And like, I say this in the best way possible. I kind of didn't get this movie for a long time in the way that like, I watched something that has a lot of reverence for it, like uh, like Zombie 2. Mm-hmm. which I had this epiphany on the Kicking and Screaming podcast, which is like, oh, man, I don't get Zombie 2. Why do people love this movie? And then I started to, like, make fun of it and enjoy it for being a fun movie rather than being like, it's Italian. That means it's cinema with, like, the pinched hand emoji. I need to expose you to more spaghetti westerns because then I think you'd understand that, like, a lot of Italian cinema you are not meant to take seriously. Yeah, but a lot of people do. Well, because people, people take- are just like, oh. I know. Not American. That means it's prestige. I don't know if anybody was expecting me for to talk about Zombie 2 in this episode, but I don't think anyone was, but I'm glad we're here. Okay, but like I didn't understand Zombie 2 because everyone always talked about like, oh my god, it's 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 fulchy, it's a big deal, like, oh, it's classic. And I'm like, this movie's dumb. This movie's extremely dumb. There's a fucking shark wrestling a zombie, and like that's cool, but it's dumb. <laughs> and the the whole movie's kind of like that. That's sort of how I feel about The Last Unicorn, which is like, oh my god, when I realized like how fucking gay this movie was, which I knew it was a little gay, but when I realized like half the characters are like really gay, including mm-hmm. the skeleton, who I'm so excited to get to in a little bit, because he's the MVP of the movie. He really is. I I had so much more fun as we were just casually poking fun of this movie and like the strange animation that prioritized style over logic and a mm-hmm. lot of other bizarre choices. And when we started to just like, I don't know. But like, like not not roast the movie, but gracefully poke fun at it. We had so much more that. fun. I think it was just acknowledging exactly what had been provided to us because there are some line reads in this that you're like, what? Like all of Jeff Bridges' line reads. Like I love it when he comes in and he's talking to Molly Grew after they've been at this castle for God knows how long, maybe months, and he's like, "I killed a dragon and an ogre and a giant." I'm doing all of these things to impress her. I'm giving these grand gestures of what a prince is supposed to do. And she doesn't give a fuck. What's wrong with me? I guess I have to be a sensitive boy and start writing poetry. Yeah, pretty much. Like, we, really what we were doing is we are like, what is the true message of what they're trying to say but can't because it's a kid's movie? And... Prince Lear is 100% the best one to do with that because everything he says is very overwrought and very, like, regal. Like, I'm a prince. I have to talk this way. But also extremely subdued. But yes. It's but Jeff it's Bridges, Bridges not so it's really like, caring. So it's, like, such a chill demeanor of, like, I'm doing all the... I, I wish that I could be better at courting you, princess, or uh, Amalthea, or whatever name. I wish you would tell me. Like, he's very chill about it. But she at won't this, even look at me. I don't understand why it's been so long, and yet she pays me no mind. It's like that. <laughs> it's like that, and like all the <laughs> subtext of it is like, the fuck am I doing wrong? Someone help me! And it's just, it just so then cracks he, me up. So then he tries to write a poem for her, and up till this point, all the music is being performed by America, 
Yes. Which, fun thing we learned about America is that America, despite being full of American men, was formed in London. Well, yeah, they were like army brats or something. I know, which is really funny to me. (laughs) But, oh God. So, um, all of the music up to this point has been performed by America just in the background. It's basically the score. And yet, Jeff Bridges is like, no, this is a musical now. I'm passionately singing from, like, the grand towers of this dilapidated castle in song to you like it's a Disney movie because this has suddenly become a musical. And it's the only song in the movie that does that. And what I also love about Jeff Bridges trying to sing is that it reminds me, and this is going to be a fan, <laughs> another movie didn't think we were going to talk about on this podcast. It reminds me of the way that the Trappers sing in Cannibal the Musical. Okay. Where they have their song and they're like, everything is jaunty and like that very like kind of masculine tone. And then they'll just go, yo-ho. And it's like yes. the weakest like pop of it's, a high it's note. It's very stringy and flimsy. Yeah, it's just it's not like straw. There. There's no power behind it. That's how Jeff Bridges sings, where he's just kind of like doing a talk singing kind of thing. And then he'll be like, oh. They did not write the song for him or his register. No, they just they were like, didn't. "Here's the song, Jeff. You gotta sing it." And he was like, "Oh crap, but the, I'll try." But the thing that I like about it, though, is that it kind of fits his character because his character is just trying and hoping it works. Yeah, <laughs> and that's kind of the energy of this song. Like, I'm gonna try it and see how it goes. Yeah, I, I don't know. It, like, do you ever listen to a song from like the 30s and go, "Man, they thought this was music at the time." <laughs> Like, this is like the 17th century. Maybe it's like that, where it's like, man, he was really good in his day. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. I don't know. It's terrible. I It's one of my favorite parts of the movie is Jeff Bridges' god-awful number. It's, it's like the really bad musical sequences they put in The Thief and the Cobbler. Oh, yeah. Oh, God. I haven't thought about that movie in so long. I love The Thief and the Cobbler. I would love to see the actual, like, good cut of that movie they're trying to put together. I hope they finally get the, to. The re-cobbled cut or whatever <laughs> that's actually, like, art and doesn't have Matthew Broderick. <laughs> but, like, it's like the songs they put in that where the animation's bullshit and the music's terrible and no one can really sing it correctly. It's that. It's it's great. Mm-hmm. I, think it's, I think it's cringy in the most incredible way possible. And then... We get to the skeleton because they're trying oh to. Oh, my God. Well, something we didn't even talk about is that Schmendrick turns the unicorn into a human because the bull wants to d- drive unicorns into the sea. And it's like, oh, well, if she's not a unicorn, then he'll be confused and leave. <laughs> and, and he did. He, it works. Yeah. And Molly's like, she'll go mad in this body. What did you do? <laughs> and she does slowly start to go mad. Yeah. She starts to develop, like, feelings. Yeah. And we'll we'll dive deep onto that into that in a little bit, but for now, They're, they they have a riddle that they learned from a pirate cat, mm-hmm. which totally like Captain Ron's its eye patch because it does not need its eye patch; it just switches eyes randomly. Yep, and that's a thing. <laughs> so this cat gives a riddle that's the most bullshit, made up, not riddle riddle. <laughs> what is it like when the time is what it's supposed to be? When the time is right. When the wine is wine, <laughs> something it's like. <laughs> yeah, the, like the riddle is some like n- absolute nonsense. Let me look it up. I'm, I'm going to do that right now because I want to read it on air. All right. So like, I looked this shit up. And first of all, I love that in this scene, <laughs> the cat goes, purr, purr, avast. <laughs> That's like when dogs go, 
bark, bark. It's so fucking dumb. I, I think it's incredible. So the riddle is, when the wine drinks itself, when the skull speaks, when the clock strikes the right time, only then will you find the tunnel that leads to the Red Bull. There be a trick to it, of course, which is such not a riddle. <laughs> it's when, when the clock strikes the right time that I could not get over. I listen, like, I listen to it a hundred times and I'm like, ah. Is it supposed to be a right angle? No. The clock doesn't mean anything. You just go through. <laughs> the trick to it is ignore the riddle. <laughs> so anyway. Uh, so we get to the skull. We get to the, the talking skull oh. who is just a drunk fool and is laughing at himself. Um, he, he gets drunk on wine that doesn't exist. It's a placebo effect. It's it's like when I've given shots to women who are way too drunk going like, oh my God, let's have vodka. And I just give them like, a lime and water. <laughs> but like, this, seriously, that's what this fucking skeleton's doing. <laughs> but everything about him is so amazing. Like, I, I, he's my favorite part of the whole movie. Yeah. And specifically, it's this line delivery he does. If you love me, you will put a clip here. Oh, I will. I know exactly which clip you want. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Ask me how to find the Red Bull. <laughs> Even Prince Lear doesn't know the secret way, but I do. Oh, you do, eh? Answer the riddle, then. Tell us the way. Say please. Please. No. Just the way that he says no. <laughs> it just... Oh, uh, it got uh, me. It got me so good. I was losing my mind Because the dramatic pause, and he's, like, toying with them. And, and he, it's not even that long of a pause. Like, I keep making it longer in my head and making it funnier. But yeah. the fact that there's any pause at all of just, no. I, I, I want it to be... <laughs> I want it to be this like Harvey Birdman moment where it just cuts back to stills of the two characters and makes the pause even longer and dumber. <laughs> in my brain, it reminds me of uh, Shooter McGavin in the House Bunny when they need to get more pledges. Where he just goes, uh, uh no. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> No, for real, it's so good. And he has like one of my other five favorite line reads in the movie, which is Unicorn! Unicorn! <laughs> he just like has glowing red eyes and is being like mega camp. Yeah, he's incredible. <laughs> oh, God, I wish the skeleton was in more scenes. He's incredible. True hero. Like, I would like, watch a spinoff of just this drunk skeleton fucking with people. God, he's my favorite character in the movie. <laughs> and he shouldn't be. Also, like, they go down to the Red Bull's lair, and then Haggard ends up cutting down a clock with a sword. And Yeah, he got a strong-ass sword. Yeah, and just traps them down there. And also, I guess I should point out that Red Bull as a company, like, we're not going to make any, like, <laughs> that gives you wings. We're not going to do that, because that's stupid. But Red Bull as a company did not exist at the time of this correct. movie, or definitely the book, which correct, makes it correct. not nearly as silly-sounding in, in hindsight. Yeah. Also, the bull in this reminds me a lot of the bull in James and the Giant Peach. Um... Yeah, no, I could see that. Like, obviously, this one is animated, and the other one is, like, an attempt at... I, I don't even know what technology they were going with at that time. It's, like, a, a hybrid of a bunch of things. Mm -hmm. But I... What is it? Like, did bulls do something that I'm unaware of? Like, why are they villains in children's fantasy media? <laughs> I don't know, but I do love his, like, goofy, jowly, like, bulldog face. 
Yeah, I kind of love him. Got like a very wrinkly face and I love him. I'm also very curious and this is going to be like a weird sort of thing. I'm curious if kids that I grew up around because I I never felt scared of the Red Bull. No, me either. But apparently everyone else was. Yeah. And apparently a bunch of people were too. But I also keep thinking about like when I grew up and about the time I would have seen this for the first time is also during the Dynasty of the Bulls. So Uh, there's like bull imagery everywhere. Like I grew up like running downstairs to watch a bull run through Chicago. And I was like, oh, the fucking coolest thing in the world. (laughs) So part of me thinks like maybe that's why I wasn't scared because. And that the logo is a red bull. Yeah. So I'm like, you know, maybe. I don't know. I mean, I saw it when I was in my 20s. So there's a good reason I was not scared of the bull. That's very true. Like, oh, my God, I'm 26 years old. The bull's so scary. (laughs) (laughs) what if that was the case um yeah so we get to we get to the showdown of of the movie and there's this weird moment where i i want to talk i want to save the moment of declarations of love with prince lear who will soon one day be king lear which is (laughs) even they're spelled differently i know but still um i want i want to put his declaration of love aside and we'll come back to it because it's part of a different topic i want to talk about and, uh, yeah, the bull murders the fuck out of him. Yeah. Just, like, gores him or whatever, or, like, headbutts him and he dies. And then the unicorn's like, oh, no, I must avenge my my fallen love and fight this bull. And has a glowing horn and pushes him into the sea where he is promptly finished off by a tsunami of horses. <laughs> the tsunami of horses is visual, like, it's visually beautiful in the, in the sense that, like, you get, like, the white crest of the wave and, like, yeah. it's just unicorns. Yeah. But thinking about that logistically makes me laugh until I want to pee my pants. Yeah. What would you do if you were on the <laughs> beach and all of a sudden, horses? Just a <laughs> just sea of horses. A sea of horses. Mind you, these horses are, like, 2,000 pounds. With... A pointy ass rod out of their forehead. I would lose my mind. Yeah. Like, I don't, like. I just love the practicality of them, them, like, climbing over each other and to create the crest of this wave. I I also want to know, like, what have they been doing (laughs) before this? Just, like, floating? No, they're they're just just chilling. Just hanging out in the ocean. So I didn't really think about it too hard because I don't think you're supposed to think that much about this movie. You're not, but I can't help myself. Yeah, but I was like, man, I I wonder if this was a a better ending for maybe a really dark ending in the book where they were like, oh, well, the unicorns were driven to the sea where they drowned and now you truly are the last unicorn. And I don't know, maybe this was like a retcon of like not read the book, but like logistically I thought about it. I was like, wait, unicorns are immortal. So that means these are just like some... Jason Voorhees horses that have just been chilling at the bottom <laughs> yeah. of the ocean and they're like, oh, they're back. They're fine. Jason Horsehees. Now! <laughs> oh, God, this movie's ridiculous and I love it so much. <laughs> but <laughs> on a serious note, let's talk about the trans read of this film. Right. Well, first, of, first, I want to mention that these unicorns end up just fucking up this cliff face that caused the castle to collapse by climbing it like spiders. Yeah, they really do. It's kind of jarring to look at. Yeah. And then the unicorn goes home and the movie kind of ends as the theme plays again. But I, we, we could go ahead and bring up the same conversation that we've had in some past episodes about how body swap films or I guess body transformation films, whether that be something like 13 going on 30 in the case of like your body growing into something else but not necessarily swapping 
and how that is inherently a trans read because there's a lot of subtext that translates across the two things. But also, I think that's kind of a boring conversation to have. Well, especially because it's one that we've had before. Yeah, so, so if people are interested in that conversation, Freaky Friday, Freaky, 13 going on 30, it's a boy-girl thing. To some extent, the Swan Princess. Mm-hmm. We've talked about it. You can go back and listen. Yeah, but I think a more interesting conversation is maybe the um, the infantilization of, of trans people and like the small bean industrial complex. I'm really glad that you brought that up because that's a conversation that has been getting kicked up a lot more mm-hmm. recently in, I think, likely because of TikTok. Probably. And how things like Adventure Time or Steven Universe. I mean, Steven Universe is the punching bag that gets yeah, hit a lot for this. always that one. But also just a lot of animation in general has become synonymous with queerness really gearing more towards ambiguous queerness or transness mm-hmm. in in all of its forms. So the trans umbrella, not specifically like being transgender across the binary. And I understand the psychology behind it. We've talked a lot previously about the idea of, you know, people transitioning and having kind of that second puberty and maybe dressing a little bit younger or enjoying the things that they were denied when they were children. Mm -hmm. I totally understand a lot of that. But there is an infantilization that also comes with it. Like there's... There's a trend on on TikTok where there was a sound of somebody who was calling towards like a cat or something. And it's like, here comes the boy. Hello, boy. Mm-hmm. And people were using it to show like coming out clips of people transitioning to trans men or, you know, trans mask non-binary people. And then there was immediately a counter where people were like, no, I'm a man. Hello, ma- hello, taxpayer. Mm-hmm. And emphasizing, like, stop treating me like I'm this, like, ooh, ooh, precious baby yeah. and infantilizing. And that is unfortunately happening a lot now. Yeah, I think another part of that is that uh, people are like, well, defend trans people, defend trans kids in particular, defend whatever. And... That means people are processing that as like, I must protect and then attack. Do a protect. Yes, they do that thing. And I don't know if people really have processed how to sort of protect people without sort of treating them as like a small, fragile creature, the the small bean, as it were. Mm -hmm. And I'm finding it very difficult to kind of... I'm I'm in the middle sort of on this. There's people who are very, very, very aggressively against this sort of behavior, um, particularly in adults. And then there's people who are like, don't tell me what to do. I can do whatever I want. And I see both aspects of this, but I'm also sitting here as someone who's like, dude, I'm I'm so beyond a second puberty. I've I've been on and off hormones like four times and I've been out for 12 years. I, I don't know how to relate to people my own age because you're putting yourself as like a second teenager. What, 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 why, what, what am I supposed to do with this? How does, how am I supposed to interact with you when you're not coming on my level? You're deliberately putting yourself down there mm-hmm. in some of these cases. So it's twofold in that you have people who are condescending, whether they want mean to or not trans people. And then you have, 
some trans people who are patronizing themselves by putting themselves in this like, well, I'm going to wear all the cute things that I couldn't as a teenager and I'm going to do all these things because I'm just like a horny teen again and I'm going and I'm figuring out how to put on makeup and like, that's cool. But also you are an, an adult now. Like there, there's a certain level of processing that as a functioning adult, like as a, you know, hello taxpayer kind of thing. So when you look at The Last Unicorn, there are is there is an obvious trans read to this mm-hmm. because, you know, obviously any transformation thing. But also there is this escapism and this fantasy world that exists where I think a lot of trans people will find animation to be very appealing because of the escapism of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, there are a lot of studies about how particularly younger trans people relate to fantasy creatures like mermaids because they don't have genitals. Oh, yeah. the One of the biggest organizations to assist trans youth in the UK is called Mermaids. Yeah. So in the case of something like The Last Unicorn, I wouldn't say that this is a totally toothless movie. There certainly is a lot of challenging topics, particularly for younger people. And it does serve as a good entry point for a visible representation of what dysphoria is. Mm-hmm. Um, in the case of the unicorn being transformed into like a human lady. But you also have a lot of people who do not choose to look past that. This is a challenging film as a child. It's not a challenging film as an adult. You see people on TikTok, you see people on Twitter who just defend their appreciation for animation or children's media by saying like, well, I wish the only trans stories weren't in animation, but there's nothing for adults without it being tragic and terrible. And there is, you've just never bothered to look. Mm-hmm. There, there's so many good like trans characters and actors and writers and stuff out there, but you're voluntarily putting yourself in a box that isn't really meant to fit you. It's almost brony-ish, but not nearly as creepy. Yeah, and there's definitely something to be said about people who can appreciate and see themselves in media that isn't necessarily meant for them. Sure. That's kind of what this entire fucking show is about. Mm -hmm. And I definitely understand the people that are like, hey, the world is really awful and harsh and I want to be, quote unquote, radically soft. And that's Mm -hmm. something that I want. I understand that. The disconnect, I think, comes with exactly what you're talking about of not being able or willing to accept that it does go farther than something like The Last Unicorn. And while, yes, I do believe that it is a great thing for people to find representation and find what makes them feel joy. But we also do have to continue challenging ourselves because this leads into a conversation I know we've had previously on the show where if we only wrap ourselves in comfort, then we become unable to handle discomfort. And discomfort is a very, very, very vital part of growing mm-hmm. in any way, shape, or form, whether it's, you know, it, it, like we call them growing pains for a reason because sometimes it is hard and it sucks, but we have to be able to feel that and get there. Otherwise, we're never going to grow. We're never going to move forward. And I think animation has become a safety blanket for a lot of people, which it is. But that's what it should be used for. It is a safety blanket. It is not the only way to live. Yeah. And I wonder if it's that you now have these large, vibrant online spaces for trans people that some of this is like developing a a learned common colloquial. 
I would agree with that. Yeah, where you now have people who are saying, like, well, why don't we talk about this? I'm like, they are just not in the circle that you have put yourself in. Mm-hmm. Like, why don't we this? I'm like, we, we do. This, this comes up all the time. Um, the one that I think of as a really good recent example was you showing me TikToks of people who are freaking out, not realizing that estrogen does not raise your voice. Yeah, that was that was a really interesting thing where uh, a trans woman did a video talking about how there because there is a trend on TikTok where trans men or trans masculine non-binary people who are on T are doing their like, hi, I'm so and so and it's one month on T. And then by the end of it, it's like, hi, I'm so and so and this is a year on T and their voice Mm -hmm. has dramatically shifted. And this trans woman was like, hey, these are great, and I love them, and I'm so happy for everybody who's feeling that, but I need you to understand this does not work the same way for trans women or trans feminine people who are on estrogen and Mm -hmm. taking testosterone blockers. It does not impact your voice. It is a learned behavior. It is something you have to do with years of vocal training. So if you hear a trans woman and her voice is quote-unquote passable, you know, understand that that took a lot of work. It's a developed skill. It's a developed skill. And I also find that to be really telling because we we talk a lot about people's assumptions of how long they think someone's been out based on how well they pass Mm -hmm. because everybody assumes that the goal is to look cis and to be unclockable and that's Mm -hmm. not the goal for everybody. And voice is part of that where – People view like trans women who still have quote unquote masculine voices as likely either being new or not quote unquote good enough. Mm-hmm. And the comment section of this video were tons of people, including trans people, being like, Thank you for saying this. I did not know that. And it's like, Yeah, because we need to develop communities of people like this is why queer elders are so important yeah and this is why it gets really scary to me when people are like it's always inherently inappropriate for somebody who's older to be friends with somebody who's younger and i'm like it's not the same circumstances all the time when it comes to like queer marginalized communities because a lot of times you figure this out about yourself way later in life Mm -hmm. like you we may have always been gay or always been trans or what have you but that doesn't mean that we existed in the world as that identity for a lot of our formative years. <laughs> yeah. So you you need that you need that community, and it's very very important. And you know, I know the the big saying right now is like, go outside and touch grass. Like, but go outside and like meet your the members of your community. There was I'm, I know we're getting on a tangent here, but people claim they like this stuff, so I'm gonna keep going for it. So do you know what Lex is? No. Okay. I didn't think that you did because I was like, you've never had to use this. No. Nope. But uh, Lex is a like queer app, but there's no pictures. Like okay. you meet people based on the things that you say. It's basically like faceless Twitter for queer people. Sure. And there was a big thing that was going viral where somebody in New York City was asking about a like bisexual space, like a bar. Oh, to I, meet other bisexual I people. I remember there was a lot of controversy. Yeah, it was a lot of controversy. But yeah. the big thing was they said, I've heard from friends that the spaces are either very much for gay men or they're, they lean aggressively towards lesbians. Where can a bi person feel safe? Mm-hmm. And the big thing is they were like, well, one, there are 15 lesbian bars in the entire US of A. Yeah. So that's not really a thing. The, you know, the critique on gay male bars, that yes, that that's a real thing. 
But the fact that they led with, I've heard Mm -hmm. that signal to everybody, like, so you've never actually gone. Yeah. So you don't actually know what these spaces are like. You're just like, well, I've heard it's this. So where can I go? Go to the go to the the, the spaces and see what they're like. And meet people. Meet your community. We we've gotten to this point where we just want people to like. Here's a guidebook on where to go. No, you've got to explore, mm-hmm. and that's scary. You've got to go out of that comfort zone, you've got and that to leave is your, scary. You've got to leave your magical unicorn forest where you're shielded and protected. To go find more unicorns in this dark, scary world of harpy titties and angry gay kings. Yes. Oh, 100%. (laughs) This is how it comes full circle. Ah, look what I did. (laughs) You have to leave your unicorn forest. Go find your unicorn waves. You have to. Because otherwise you will be the last unicorn. And that's a sad and lonely existence. You're a last unicorn who's just using your unicorn hooves to type on social media going... Man, I don't. What do I do? Yes, and it's like, Where, where's, why isn't where's my this fellow the message trans- that you took from this movie? Where's my other fellow trans femme unicorns at? Like, they're in the fucking ocean. Go swim with them. I, I don't think that that's as delightful sounding in it's the not. movie as I'm you just... make it sound. Go swim. It's nice. <laughs> I hear the water's good this time of year. <laughs> well, Harmony. I think the time has come. The last unicorn is asking you to the prom. Is it a yes, a no, or a maybe? And are you writing anything on the card back? Honestly, I was not sure where I was going to put this movie before we sat down to watch it. Because I was fairly lukewarm on mm-hmm. The Last Unicorn. Um, it's kind of like how the soundtrack is is okay. It, it's serviceable for what it is. But it's also a little, a little, a little dull because it's extremely soft rock. Mm-hmm. But in in a way, we found a way to make it better and fit us better in the way that like my favorite version of this soundtrack is performed by the band Ninja Sex Party, of which the lead singer, uh, Dan, this is his favorite movie. And I think that their cover is incredible. It was also in rewatching this, now having experienced Ninja Sex Party, I was like, oh, I can see the influence that this movie had on Dan's music style. Yeah, and his, with how his, he sings. His tight harmonies. Like, it makes complete sense to me. Yeah, I mean, I've, I found a way for me to fit with The Last Unicorn because before this, it, it just didn't gel with me. But I'm like, okay, cool. Well, I've kind of bent it and appreciate different things about it than maybe it's necessarily going for, but I'm still picking up on, like, the core heart of it. And, uh, yeah, no, I'm going to give The Last Unicorn a yes. Fantastic. Fantastical. Ooh. (laughs) (laughs) Well, friends, that takes us out on The Last Unicorn. You can support the show on Patreon, patreon.com backslash this ends at prom. You can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at this ends at prom. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at BJ Colangelo. Harmony, where are you? I am on Twitter and Instagram at Velocitraptor, Veloci underscore trap underscore tour. And as always, huge thank you to the Sonderbombs for letting us use title as our theme song. Harmony, do you have a cool indie band for people to check out this week? I do. I usually try to make the band actually match up to like the tone of the movie but i didn't want something quite so gentle as this soundtrack so i went with something kind of medievally a little sea shanty okay so i'm going with the band uh sarah and the safe word they released a new song called lost ring on riverdale that came out a few weeks ago Mm -hmm. 
And uh, no, that that's a tight song. They also have an album that they released last year that's also super duper good. So go ahead and uh, check that out. Alrighty, friends. Thank you, as always, for listening. We will see you next week. And as always, save that last dance for us. The last unicorn. <laughs> But a tree is love. Oh, God, I'm engaged with Douglas Fir. This episode was brought to you by Pod People Productions. To find more episodes of this show and others, please visit podpeople.me.